In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have three, as always, interesting topics to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like every time we introduce the concept of three topics, it's like we're being flashier than we need to be. (laughs) It's like, ooh, we have three really interesting topics. (laughs) And the reason why we're framing it that way is because we're bad at transitions. (laughs) (laughs) The most interesting ever episode of the Perspectrum. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, every episode is more interesting than the last. So every episode is the most interesting episode of the Perspectrum, right? Certainly by the time we record it. Absolutely. (laughs) Just temporally. (laughs) So uh, today we're going to do a full segment COVID update. We haven't done that in a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then we're going to spend some time talking about the Hunter Biden scandal. Uh, Now, for those of you that are listening to this, which is all of you, except Michael, uh, I put that in air quotations. Mm -hmm. Uh, You might have actually heard that in my voice, but, you know, I I don't know if you picked up on that. (laughs) I mean, I sometimes have trouble picking up on that because I'm autistic. Um, And then the third topic we're going to talk about is the concerning possibility of a red mirage. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means and what are the implications of that in our third segment. But before we get started on all of that, let's do a brief overview of the COVID numbers. So, Michael. Yeah, always always the highlight of our episode right at the top. (laughs) Um, So currently worldwide, we've had a total of 41.4 million people who have contracted COVID, which is up from 39.1 million last week, um, which is a 5.9% increase, which is a little bit slower um, than the week-over-week increase from, from the week before, which is good. Um, currently, we've had 1.13 million uh, people die from COVID in the world, which is a 3% increase uh, in total deaths over last week. Um, there are currently 9.5 million people actively sick with COVID versus 8.7 million sick last week, which is an increase of about 9%. Um, and if you remember last week, there were, there was about it was about a ten percent increase in active cases last week. So slightly slower, but still, you know, that's a big increase ten per ten nine to ten percent a week. So basically, yeah. eight hundred thousand more people have been diagnosed with COVID since our last episode. Yeah. So in the U.S., we've had a total of eight point six million people who have contracted COVID, up from eight point two million last week, which is about a four point nine percent increase in total cases. Uh, so far, 227,000 people have died, um, which is a 1.8% increase over last week's 223,000. So basically, since our last episode, 4,000 more people have died in the U.S. Uh, yeah. Or, or as Trump would call it, uh, we are rounding the corner. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I believe that it was, uh, I believe it was uh, Seth Meyers that uh, recently made the joke that um, if you keep rounding the corner then what's happening is that you're actually just going in circles. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
Turn your words back on yourself, Trump. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, that's, that's what he does best. Yeah. Uh, So things aren't going very well in the COVID world. No. And honestly, politically things aren't getting much better. So uh, Michael, you want to spend a little bit of time uh, starting out by talking about the stimulus package proposals? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So so even though a few weeks ago, Trump kind of threatened to halt COVID stimulus talks um, because he, he thought the Democrats weren't negotiating in good faith. Since then, progress has been made. Pelosi and Mnuchin have been, um, you know, in multiple negotiations trying to iron out a deal. Um, and so we wanted to walk through some of those um, and some of the the tactics that the Republicans have been kind of using to to try to delay that in fact certainly yeah. in mcconnell yeah so there's definitely a few things to think about when it comes to the overall negotiations uh there does seem to be a general agreement that there does need to be to some extent a reinstatement of unemployment benefits there also does seem to be an agreement that there should be another loan allocated to uh, small businesses and allocated to help schools um, open their doors. There also does seem to be agreement on straight up just sending out checks to to uh, to Americans. Where the disagreements come is on how much money to put in the enhanced unemployment insurance. So if you'll recall the original the original stimulus package was $600 a week. And then later Republicans had proposed, uh, what was it, like 250 or 400? Yeah, I think like it was, that. I think it went back and forth. They originally proposed, I think, 200, 250, um, yeah. and then eventually worked their way up to like 400 bucks. Yeah. So much less than people were getting. And of course, the argument that they were making was, oh, well, I mean, if people, some people who were making 600 on unemployment were making more money on unemployment than they were working. And of course, their takeaway from that was not the obvious takeaway, which is, oh my God, they were making less than $600 a week. Wages are too low. We need to fix that. Uh, Because of course, you know, the first thought in their mind is not, you know, let's try to empathize with everyday Americans. Um. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> the crazy thing to me is their worry is, oh, well, that's going to disincentivize people from working. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's the point. Uh, and then the other disagreement is on how much money should go towards states and, and municipalities. Uh, now, Trump's whole argument with this is, oh, I don't want to I don't want to bail out all of these Democrats who have been screwing up so badly. It's like, dude. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are no facts for that. There's Nothing no, supports that. There are no facts. Also, even if they the were place. poorly managed, like, is is he really saying that he is so much not the president of Democrats that he's willing to let states and cities run by Democrats die from disease yeah. rather than give them the aid they need? I mean, if I were if I were president and I were a Democrat. Hmm. And there were a crisis like this in which Republicans had screwed over their population, which I'm not saying that Democratic governors have screwed over their populations uh, more so than Republican governors have. But if, if, if that had happened under my administration, I would say, all right, well, your governors failed you. 
I'm going to do everything I can to protect you. Exactly. Like, I'm going to get you that money. I'm going to make sure that they use it properly. I'm yeah. going to take care of you. No, of course, that's not what Trump does because he lacks empathy. Yeah, and it's, it's not about the people. It's about the uh, relationships. It's about the cronies. It's about the fact that if he doesn't like somebody, he's not going to help them, no matter what the consequences. Yeah. Now, all of that being said, I would like to make a criticism of Nancy Pelosi on this because there was originally a package that had been proposed by Steve Mnuchin that did that clearly did not have all of the things that we wanted in a stimulus package, but it didn't have anything bad. Like it was only good things. Mm -hmm. You know, it was not enough good things, but it was only good things. And Pelosi was just like, no, definitely not doing it. It's dead on arrival. And she actually had this interview with Wolf Blitzer in which she defended herself on this. And she really did not come across well in this interview. Like she was, she was basically, uh, she's basically making the argument that anybody that is outside of these negotiations are, you know, you know, they're being apologists towards Trump, which is silly because like like Wolf Blitzer had cited people like uh, Ro Khanna, Congressman Ro Khanna, who is well to Nancy Pelosi's left, and uh, you know former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who is also to Nancy Pelosi's left, who basically said, "Look, people need the aid. Yeah, like take the deal." And honestly, if you were somebody who was conspiratorial, or somebody who maybe not conspiratorial, but if super you cynical, were, for sure. If you were super cynical, then you might say, huh, I wonder if the reason why Nancy Pelosi is rejecting this deal is because she thinks that a stimulus package before the election is going to help Donald Trump get reelected. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, Blitzer asked her about that, and she assured him that that wasn't the case. But a cynical person might look at that and potentially be suspicious. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. But but at the same time, I, I do think that these new talks, because uh, because the, these new talks, the, the, the articles about these new talks came out just yesterday. And it does appear that things are starting to that there is progress being made. And if there is a deal before Election Day, then that will definitely put a lot of my own personal gripes about Nancy Pelosi in the situation to rest. And if she's able to get more than the original proposal, then hell wonderful. I'll be yeah. happy to give her credit. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think if I were in Nancy Pelosi's shoes, I'm trying to think of what I might do. Cause on the one hand, if you expect the Democrats are going to sweep the election, which a lot of predictions indicate, you might be very willing to take a, a smaller bill with no negative things, but but not as many positive things as you would hope, to like tide people over until the Democrats take um, their new elected offices in January. At which at which point you could put together a more comprehensive, more thorough bill. Yeah, but I she might be weighing the risk if Democrats, um, you know, they're almost definitely going to take the House, but if they don't take the Senate, she might be and and if. And if Democrats don't take the White House, she might be weighing the risk of um, a continued like Republican control, in which case it makes sense to try to get as much as you possibly can while the pressure is on the Trump administration to make progress before Election Day, because we know that 
you know, Trump is pushing for a deal as fast as possible because one of his biggest weaknesses is how poorly yeah. his administration has responded. Yeah. Um, so well, and and when he said that he was going to shut down COVID talks, he immediately backtracked because he realized, oh, if I did that, then I've just put the final nail in my coffin for re-election. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is weird. Which is weird from my perspective. Then why McConnell is trying to halt the deal? Um, so he's he's said that like he uh, will bring it to the floor. Um, if they reach a deal before election day, but not necessarily that he'll bring it to the floor before election day. And he's warned that they shouldn't reach a deal before November 3rd. Um, and the reason is because he's focused on the Coney Barrett hearings. Yeah. And again, this goes back to what I have said repeatedly, which is that the most horrific politician in America is not Donald Trump. It is Mitch McConnell. Because mm -hmm. at least in this case... Donald Trump is at least aware enough about his situation to know that he needs to reach a deal. Yeah. Like, if he wants any chance of re-election, he needs to reach a deal. And he's even said, like, hey, I want to reach a deal where I ask for even more than Democrats are. Yeah, now, he's come, you know, he said that a few times. Now, there's no indication that his administration's actually doing that. And asking you know, for and more might be asking for more for big corporations and his yeah. wealthy crony folks but <laughs> fair fair point at least the actions that trump is doing is more so putting the interests of the american people first than mitch mcconnell is mm -hmm. but you know mitch mcconnell's entire priority is he wants his legacy to be securing right-wing courts yeah and if he's able to get this nomination that's just the cherry on top of his legacy yeah yeah it's true and and so, he is up for re-election um, yeah. So, and and I'm sure that he thinks Amy McGrath is closer than uh, he'd like her to be, even though she's still trailing in the polls a bit. Yeah. Um, but and yeah, he's I mean, even said in private meetings, like we're focusing on the we're we're focusing on the hearings. Yeah. Like, and he's even he's even said that he thinks that it'll be difficult to get 13 Republicans to join with the Democrats in order to pass a bill mm -hmm. um, because that would be the number of number of Republicans it would take in order for him to avoid a filibuster. Yeah. Um, so right now he's basically pointing out the fact that his own party does not care enough about the American people to pass any type of stimulus bill that would actually help people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but he's going to keep the them from is, having to deal with that with his favorite legislative power trip not bringing it to the floor <laughs> yeah yeah so but the thing is one concern that i have about this and one of the th reasons why i think that nancy pelosi really does need to get a deal out there before election day is if biden does take the white house but does not but democrats do not take the senate mm -hmm. Republicans are already talking about austerity politics. Yeah, you know, sure. They stopped caring about the deficit when it came to giving tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires because, of course, they did. You know, they completely blew up the deficit, even though they claimed that it would pay for that the tax cuts for the rich would pay for it themselves. Um, but they're already talking about how okay, well, as soon as Joe, if Joe Biden becomes president and we still have power in the Senate. It's time to start blocking everything again. It's time yeah. to start talking about austerity. It's time to start talking about the deficits. It's time to start making sure that nothing gets passed to benefit the American people. And one of the important reasons why we need to bring this up is to point out the fact that, yes, it is essential 
that Donald Trump be removed from office. But if we really want serious change, if we want it to mean something besides just, you know, uh, the undo button, then we have to also take the Senate. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Um, and and obviously, like, senatorial races are always followed less closely than presidential races, it seems. But, man, with, I mean, without the Senate, we just, we, we're not accomplishing anything that we would yeah. hope to accomplish, which ultimately undermines the value proposition of Democrats. So, yeah. so that could undermine our ability to get elected and gain more power in the future. Cause you know, at this point we have, we've committed, we've tried to promise a lot of stuff cause we want to get a lot done. Um, but ultimately without the Senate, like most of that's dead in the water. Yeah. But anyway, so another case of, of, Mitch McConnell pulling, putting his uh, his own interest in front of the interests of the American people, in addition to um, you know politics getting in the way of things that really need to happen. Because what's on the line, as Nathan laid out, is is more stimulus checks and better unemployment benefits, and aid for small businesses, and and even money for coronavirus testing and contact tracing, like literal money that will be used to fight the pandemic as well as its negative economic impacts is on the line and it's being held up because of um political sniping yeah yay (laughs) (laughs) on an on another note which is not necessarily better um (laughs) uh is uh progress on a vaccine so uh in the race towards the vaccine there's been a bit of a, a snag um, which is actually not necessarily unexpected, but um, Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca, um, both in phase three trials for their vaccine, have both paused um, over adverse health impacts of um, a couple of their participants. So worries that the vaccine is actually causing a negative impact in a couple people. Now, I will say these are huge trials. Like the Johnson and Johnson trial is sixty thousand participants, and I think I think it's two people that have had adverse health impacts, um, which is you know bad. That's if 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 that is an actual problem, then you know that's much too high of a fail rate. But uh, you know not necessarily uh, a huge problem yet, and and they're continuing to investigate it. In addition, Eli Lilly. Um, which is a another pharmaceutical company and drug manufacturer has paused its antibody treatment trials as well um, because they've they've similarly had issues. Now the interesting thing about this one is that you know this is a treatment for people that already have COVID, um, and so you know often you would expect these people to have adverse health consequences anyway. So experts have hypothesized that that there might be some serious things going wrong in this trial in order for them to actually pause it um, because you'd kind of expect things to, you know, people are, people are sick already. They're, they're not going to get better immediately and they might get a little bit worse before they get better. So for them to actually pause the trial, um, you know, they guess that there, there might be something serious going on. Um, but there's actually not a lot of information already released about, um, you know, these vaccines, the, the vaccine trials, but we do know that, um, the process is for the companies and the FDA to both go in and 
um, investigate the drivers. Um, and you know, in, in the case of the vaccine trials, they're, they're actually double blind, um, which means that once they pause them, they don't actually even know if the people that uh, have had adverse health consequences are part of the control or test group yet. So they actually don't know yet whether they are, um, you know, whether it's actually a response to the vaccine. Um, but, you know, overall, I think currently there are 43 vaccines which are in various stages of testing. So the fact that two um, have had bits of a setback in their phase three trials is not super surprising. Um, and it's still not clear that, you know, whether that's actually a problem for these vaccines or it's something, something else going on. Um, but it actually, in my mind, is a really good thing because we know that they're paying attention now. Yeah. You know, we know that the FDA is, and, and these companies are, are focused on creating a good vaccine yeah. that actually works. Yeah, one of, one of the concerns that uh, I had was the possibility of Trump basically strong-arming the FDA, uh, strong-arming other companies to try to bring out a vaccine that was not ready. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that they are making sure to uh, to be careful, to take steps back when they do hit road bumps, uh, and also being transparent about those road bumps, mm -hmm. that makes me feel a lot better about, number one, when a vaccine does come, that it's going to be a good vaccine. Mm -hmm. And number two, that hopefully the vaccine will not be something that is super political. Because mm. yeah. I, I don't want that. I don't want that to be politicized. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And you, and you, I think I think you're right to be worried, and you're certainly not alone. Because uh, you know the the Trump administration has put a lot of pressure on the FDA to skirt safety and testing protocols kind of throughout the COVID pandemic. Um, for example, they've specifically pushed the FDA chair to approve like emergency um, approval for Regeneron, uh, which is, you know, a, a similar antibody treatment, as well as hydroxychloroquine and covalescent uh, plasma, which are both kind of debunked one-time potential treatments that, that got this emergency approval. Um, yeah. And, you know, the antibody treatment, um, one of the antibody treatments that he's pushed the FDA to approve on this emergency basis is actually the antibody treatment from Eli Lilly that recently had their trial paused because it turned out that it might not actually be safe. And so, mm -hmm. like, you know, him pushing the FDA to compromise on their testing procedures is really problematic. And it's problematic even if they don't actually do it, which is, I think, an important point. Like, even if they never actually compromise their procedures, the problem with having a, a president who has eroded public trust in his ability to respond to the pandemic, then going and trying to pressure, you know, the nation's protector of, of uh, you know, like safety and health, um, and the fact that he gets a lot of attention when doing this and, and totally overshadows the FDA trying to actually manage public opinion and expectations. Um, so even, even 
while the FDA is like trying to put in, um, you know, actually stricter standards, enhanced standards for um, the COVID vaccine to make sure that it will, you know, even though it's going through this really fast process, that it will be safe and effective. Um, the the Trump administration has has dismissed this as political and said that they might try to reject these enhanced standards. And, and Trump said specifically, quote, uh, that he has, uh, quote, tremendous trust in these massive companies. When you have great companies coming up with these vaccines, why would they, the FDA, have to be, you know, adding great length to the process? Because um, that's the process, yeah, dumbass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Uh, you, know, you know those movies about natural disasters or diseases or whatever mm -hmm. um where scientists are trying to warn everybody about something yeah <laughs> you know, there's a reason why politicians in those types of movies are always the bad guys <laughs> like they're always the unlikable people mm -hmm. there's a reason for that i feel like donald trump watches movies like that and he's thinking well why is anybody listening yeah. <laughs> you don't want to panic anybody? You don't want to panic anybody? Why is yeah. nobody listening to that that smart politician with a slimy face? Yeah, Donald Trump watches movies and identifies with the bad guy. He's like, yeah. I hate movies. Like they always end up with the people I don't like winning. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the thing is, like, you know, to to your concern, the fact that he's doing this for political expediency. Um, has the potential to prolong the disease and make us less safe. Current While also claiming that the reason why people are following a process is because of political reasons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which like, is, like, it's like he has no capability of recognizing that a person might be doing something because, you know, the they're moral. Yeah. Like, like he, he has no concept of a person doing something that motivation? he doesn't like, not because of like political reasons, because if it were him, if he were in that position, he knows that he would be doing everything he could to sabotage a person's political future that he disagrees yeah. with. Yeah. He knows that. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and the thing is like the fact that he's undermining public confidence in the FDA and in this COVID vaccine is really problematic. Um, at this point, 51% of people, uh, only 51% of people say that they would actually take the vaccine, which is down from 72% that said they would take it back in May. So significantly fewer people, lo like lower public confidence in the vaccine. While at the same time, 77% of, of respondents to this, this Pew Research study um, said that they thought the vaccine would be approved before it was deemed safe and effective. 77% of people. Now, it's interesting that 51% of people would actually take it, but 77% of it think, 77% think it won't be safe and or effective. But <laughs> th that judgment aside, like the fact that, you know, people literally don't think this vaccine will work. And if only 15% of people take it, it won't. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a good point. And I guess the final cherry on top that I want to put out there is the fact that Trump 
has now openly teased Joe Biden because if elected, he would listen to scientists. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That is no. a direct quotation. Yeah. He was like, oh, he'll listen to scientists. Like in a rally, he actually said that mm-hmm. as a criticism of Joe Biden. Yeah. So the important thing to note here, and this is something that I've, we've talked about several times on the pod, science is not an ideology. Mm-hmm. It's not a group of beliefs. It's not even a group of facts. It's a process. It's a process of using evidence-based practices in order to find the truth. Scientists, by extension, are people that use evidence-based practices in order to find the truth. So, if you are openly saying that it's ridiculous for somebody to listen to scientists, you are basically openly saying that the rejection of evidence is a good thing. And conversely, accepting evidence-based practices is something worthy of mockery. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because it's the tip of destiny and you know it will be rocking because it's fucking insane (laughs) (laughs) yeah also because uh also because it makes the world a better place and all Mm. that yeah yeah i love the i love the tenacious d reference it's so rare (laughs) to hear a tenacious d song come out well it's it's funny because i actually where i'm sitting recording right now which currently because i'm between houses is my childhood bedroom mm. i actually have a tenacious d poster really literally right in front of me right oh now oh my god jack black <laughs> like, i am looking at a tenacious d poster right now as i am talking they would be so proud so it proud. is a it is a uh poster of jack black and kyle gas riding sasquatch mm. if if <laughs> listeners have not listened to tenacious d go ahead and pause and go listen to some of their episodes uh that's a throwback yeah you will never be the same good for better or worse (laughs) um so michael what's our tip for good this week so our tip for good this week is another pretty practical one but not as easy as some of the other tips that we've had um and it is COVID related and it's specifically now more than ever it's really important to be transparent with the people that you interact with. Um, if you have had interactions or exposure or potential exposure, you know, to other people, like now more than ever, you have to enable the people around you, the people that you love and respect with all the information they need to make decisions about their own safety and health, which means that, you know, if you've seen a friend, and you're going to see another friend. They've got to know about each other that you were yeah. in between. If you've taken a trip recently in which you might have been somewhere where there wasn't social distancing, mm-hmm. the people that you hang around, they deserve to know that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and you and no matter how you feel about it, no matter how safe you feel, it's important for you to defer to their judgment about their own health and safety. Because I mean and and I will say this is a simple thing to describe, but it's it can be a hard thing to do. You know, you want 
you want to be able to see the people around you in this like desperately socially isolated time. You like, you want every excuse you can to, to see people, but it's really key to be open and transparent about the risks that you have, um, that you've, uh, undergone so that, you know, the people that you love and respect can make decisions for themselves. And wear a mask. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's tips tips for good. So for our next segment, I was really going back and forth about whether we should even have this because, you know, we tend to pride ourselves on this show uh, with our attention to facts and integrity and thoughtfulness. And all of that is lacking from the story that we're about to discuss. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, it's really important because this seems to be an attempted like quote October surprise. Um, and it seems, and it's getting a lot of attention, not only because of its own content, but also a lot of conversation around some of the issues that have been spinning off of it. Um, and we're specifically talking about the story that the New York post recently put out, uh, purporting to, uh, expose this scandal regarding Hunter and Joe Biden. Yeah. And before we get started on this, there are a few points that I would like to make, a few caveats I would like to make. So I believe that if you were a longtime listener, you might have gotten the impression that I'm not a huge fan of Joe Biden. <laughs> you know, he's he's not somebody that I would uh, phone bank for. He's not somebody that I would, you know, jump up and down for joy if I if I ever met him. Um yeah, not a huge fan of him. So when we're talking about corruption with regard to Joe Biden, and if you ask me, do I think Joe Biden is corrupt? My answer is going to be yes, I do think he's corrupt. I think he's corrupt because of the way that a lot of politicians are corrupt, which is uh, corporate donations, which is super PACs, which is uh, the fact that because we live in a system in which corporations can spend as much money as they want to to try to get a politician elected. And that same politician will then be writing legislation or, in this case, carrying out legislation, signing legislation that will make that corporation, that will benefit that corporation. You know, in Washington, they call that business as usual. I call that corruption. So, in the way that most politicians, other than the ones, of course, that refuse to take corporate PAC money in the way that most politicians in Washington are corrupt. Joe Biden is also corrupt. And I don't think that's okay. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't like him during the primary. It's one of the reasons why I was very, I was very much a cheerleader for the politicians that were living out the principle behind not accepting PAC money and being anti-corruption like uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Andrew Yang. Um, And, For that reason, I already have a lot of gripes against Joe Biden. Now, if we're talking about the story about Hunter Biden, what we do know, one thing that's important is that what we do know is that Hunter Biden did get a job with Burisma, and it's unclear if he had the right qualifications for that job. Sure. And it's probably pretty clear that the reason why he got that is because his last name was Biden. Mm-hmm. Good old-fashioned. Point that out. 
It's not yeah. even nepotism, actually. I was going to call it good old-fashioned nepotism, but it's not even that. <laughs> yeah, it's not even necessarily nepotism because, I mean, Joe Biden's not the one that made the decision to to, to give him that job. job. It's the company that did that. He was yeah. cashing in on his name, which the fact I guess that good old-fashioned elitism, then. <laughs> yeah, elitism. So if you want to criticize elitism, if you want to criticize Hunter Biden for cashing in on his father's name to get a job that he probably wasn't qualified for, go right ahead. I'll criticize him for that, too. I'll be right there with you. Yeah, absolutely. All of that being said... This story is bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> there are a lot of legitimate frustrations with uh, Joe Biden and even Hunter Biden. If for some reason you care about some random dude related to Joe Biden, yeah. but this is just not one of them. So, so all right, I'm just going to start off by reading the headline because man, that can tell you so much. Yeah. The headline is quote smoking gun email reveals how Hunter Biden introduced Ukrainian businessman to VP dad. What the heck is with that? <laughs> like, the story here is that a Biden introduced somebody to his dad? Yeah. It's like, in what world is that wrongdoing? So, like, you must, like, you have to be filling in a bunch of details in order to think that that is in some way corrupt. And yeah. like, maybe if you think, you know, Hunter and Joe are just like the worst scum of the earth, that like really leads you into thinking this story is going to be good and juicy. But it just, none of the details, even if they were true, end up leading to this like smoking gun claim that somehow someone important yeah. in our electoral system is corrupt. It's like a smoking gun, but without the gun it's just the smoke yeah. first off one of the biggest things that we do know is that this is basically trying to uh take us back to that allegation that i believe this was an allegation from back during the primary mm -hmm. that uh hunter biden was uh you know while he was on the board for burisma that there is a prosecutor in Ukraine uh, named uh, Viktor uh, Shokin who was investigating Burisma. And at the time, Joe Biden was demanding that that prosecutor be fired in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you just look at those facts, hey, that, that sounds kind of bad. But you need to look at more facts than yeah. that. <laughs> and when you do look at more facts from that, you realize, oh, like the entire international community was also in favor of yeah. getting this prosecutor fired because they were super corrupt. And in fact, their investigation into Burisma was kind of on the back burner. Mm -hmm. In fact, the fact that he was replaced was worse for Burisma. Yeah. Because, you know, they got a more competent because then he gets yeah. replaced with a more competent prosecutor yeah. who is not corrupt. So, yeah, it was it was clearly part of U.S. and international interests, including the IMF and the WHO, like both pushing for this to get this prosecutor removed. And, yeah. you know, so it's clear that there was there isn't any evidence that at any point the Obama administration and by extension, Joe Biden did anything that would compromise the integrity of the office mm -hmm. in order to give a political or financial or business advantage to Burisma. There's yeah. no evidence of that. Yep. So that means that the claims from this article, if they are true, which you know we'll get to 
where they came from in a second, but if they are true, then this only implicates Hunter. Yeah. It does not implicate Joe Biden. Yep. And and to that I would say, well, you've convinced me. I will not be voting for Hunter Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and to be clear, like as you go through this article, the only claim of wrongdoing is the only I should say the only implication of wrongdoing is reference to this Burisma uh, or this, uh, you know, Ukrainian prosecutor, which, which has as been soon developed. as you, yeah, as soon as you look at that, you immediately find information that like literally even if, even if by some weird thing, Joe Biden was doing this and his primary motivation was to help out his son, it would literally not be adverse to his, his role in office. It would be like, yeah a win-win yeah i mean it ended up you know and it would have been counterproductive anyway yeah because, exactly like That's this was point. not a good prosecutor yeah everybody hated him yeah Prisma would have just needed some money and then they would not have to not have to worry about him anymore yeah so the specific claim of the article um and we can talk about where this came from and and the origins in a second but the specific claim is that hunter biden introduced um Joe Biden, when he was Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at Burisma, which is a Ukrainian energy company, um, like a, a few months before uh, Joe Biden pressured the Ukrainian government to get rid of this prosecutor. So that's like the core uh, claim. And it does sound suspicious when you put it like that, but we've already broken down that it's not like that that's, that's not a conflict of interest in this way. And even if he did meet with this this person, you know, there's no indication that that would mean he was somehow influenced or in bed with this, this individual either. Like, like, uh, there's just no reason to automatically conclude that there's any connection to them. Um, even if he did meet with them, which is, which is dubious. And we'll talk about that as well. And so the only evidence that the article provides is an email that they, that they found in this, in this hard drive. Um, where uh, that, that, that states, quote, Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving me an opportunity to meet your father and spend some time together. It's really an honor and pleasure. Now, my reading of that email corrects for a few grammatical errors, um, but notice a few things. One, there's no temporal language. It is all written in the present progressive, which could refer to, thanks for inviting me, and giving me the opportunity to meet your father. It could refer to the future, that this might happen in the future, or it could refer to the past. Um, so even not good evidence that, that this necessarily refers to a meeting that has already taken place. Um, and also, on top of that, Biden's staff has, has reviewed Biden's schedule, and there was no meeting for this guy, um, and certainly no like official discussion of any kind of policy because multiple people have said that they have no idea who this guy was um, uh, until like this article came out. And these are people that were, you know, actively working on Ukraine issues with um, Joe Biden at the time. So let's talk about, as Donald Trump would call it, the oranges of this, uh, <laughs> these emails. So, this is the part that already shoots up a red flag mm -hmm. for me. So apparently they found they found these emails on a hard drive uh, on the hard drive of a laptop that Hunter Biden 
had dropped off dropped off at a Mac repair shop and then just left it there and never never picked it up. Yeah, that's what they claim. So already that's ridiculous. Yeah, and then you find out that the way that the New York Post got this hard got these emails was from Rudy Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, and that's the second red flag because. There have already been multiple intelligence officials that have declared that Rudy Giuliani might be compromised mm -hmm. by foreign governments. Yeah. So already the story is questionable, and then the source is Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, and 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 I'd say there are even a couple more like little sub red flags within that. So first of all, um, we don't have a positive identification that Joe that Hunter Biden was the person who dropped off this laptop. Um, the the shop owner says that he was he's pretty sure that it was Hunter Biden, but we should note the shop owner um, also is legally blind, hmm. and so wouldn't <laughs> oh be a great God. source for. You can't make this stuff up. I know, <laughs> and so yeah, and so like he he the shop owner then you know copied this hard drive, uh, let the FBI know that he had this this computer. Um, and then, and then copied the hard drive and gave the hard drive to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer. Rudy, Rudy Giuliani then tried to shop around the story to a number of outlets. Including Fox. Including Fox News. And none of them would take it because it wasn't credible. And then finally, the New York Post took it. And the people that wrote the article didn't even want to put their names on it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was they, it, they thought it was so questionable. Mm-hmm. Like they thought, wow, if I if my name is on this article, it might destroy my publishing career because of how how much journalistic malpractice was associated with the decision to publish this article. Yeah. 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 This, I, I like and the people that did put their names on the article um, are the main one is a former um, producer for Fox News. She worked on Hunt, Sean Hannity. Um, avid Trump supporter. Um, and, you know, if you're not interested in being a great journalist, you're probably getting a lot of clicks from this. And so yeah. I guess more power to you. I mean, it's a tabloid. Yeah. You know? It, yeah, it truly is. Like, no no one... And, and it's 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 not a credible source. And they they have not said whether they put these emails and these files through any, any type of authentication whatsoever. We have no idea if this is, is made up. A number of former intelligence officials have said that this particular event bears all the markings of a disinformation campaign, and an anonymous source from inside the FBI said they were looking into whether uh, this was tied to a Russian disinformation campaign to undermine, undermine um, Biden's uh, potential victory in the election. Yeah. So Trump has definitely latched onto this uh, in an attempt to try to d distract from his abysmal uh, poll numbers and his abysmal coronavirus mm -hmm. response. And I really think that he probably wish he hadn't brought up the kid of the president of the presidential candidate he's running against, because that opens the door. <laughs> To his own family. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, and when you start to read up about just how amazingly corrupt 
his own and family incompetent. is. <laughs> and incompetent they are. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, even simple stuff like, uh, so in January uh, 2019, um, Eric Trump took a business trip to Uruguay and it was to visit a Trump property and it ended up costing over $80,000 worth of Secret Service protection. In September 2019, uh, Donald Trump Jr. Um, met in New York with a bunch of purchasers of Trump-branded condos in India, for, from India. And he actually said to the Indian newspaper, quote, uh, India is a market that we would be very interested in post-politics. Mm -hmm. So using his political position as the president's son, very clearly right here, in order to establish a relationship after, like, after they're out of politics. And I would also like to point out that both Don Jr. and Eric Trump said prior to inauguration that they would be staying out of politics, that mm. they were just going to focus on running the business. They would completely stay out of politics. And, of course, it took them, like, you know, two seconds to completely go back on that like, promise. Oh, crap, there's a lot of money here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and just, just the more you read the more insane that it is. I mean, yeah. there's this other case where the Trump organization had tried to, uh, was uh, setting, creating a project in Indonesia, and they ended up receiving $50 billion from a state-owned Chinese construction company. And part of those negotiations was not just Eric and Don Jr., but also Ivanka Trump. And the reason why that's important is because she works in the White House. Yeah. She actually has a position. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go on and on about how much money Trump himself has been making uh, as in the time that he's been president. I could go on and on about how corrupt his kids are, yeah. how incompetent they are. And let's let's not forget that, like, Trump actually did try to pressure a foreign leader to interfere in our election like the hypocrisy of people trying to focus on joe biden's son like not even necessarily influence peddling people asking joe biden's son to peddle influence yeah is just the hypocrisy there just absolutely blows me away and so like literally even if all of this were true even if like biden were doing corrupt garbage it's like the same it's the same deal that we've been stuck with this whole time is pretty much no matter what trump has done it and he's done it worse and now it's time for one of our favorite segments asshat of, of the week. week so nathan who is our asshat this week well, Michael, our asshat this week is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Oh, Come on down. Oh, man. I'm so happy he's finally on the show. I feel like this yeah. guy should have been on earlier. <laughs> but that's the thing. We only have one segment per episode. You yeah. know, we got to prioritize. <laughs> we do have to prioritize. That is true. So, Michael, what did Ron DeSantis do? So, Ron DeSantis has been pushing to make sure that felons in Florida 
can't vote. So, so it started off like that was, that was the law that, that, um, in Florida, you couldn't vote if you had a felony conviction. And then it was a, it was a ballot initiative. You know, it went to the people of Florida, um, to, you know, try to see if they wanted felons to have the right to vote in their state. And, uh, it was successful. Um, and you know, now, uh, you know, they have the right to vote, which is awesome. It's something that we've pushed for on this pod a lot. Um, and And yet, and also real, real quick to be clear, uh, we're not talking like the, the Florida law was a really slight adjustment in a lot of ways. You know, when, when you hear us say giving felons the right to vote, the Florida law gives felons the right to vote after they have served their time. Mm -hmm. Like there, there are some states and, you know, we actually kind of push for on the pod where, you know, there's a pretty solid argument for just saying, hey, even if you're still in jail, you still deserve a right to vote because you're a citizen. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Florida law would have just made it so that people that had lost their right to vote for life would be able to then vote after they had served their time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so... You know, these are these are people that have served their time. They're out in out in society, and they're citizens of the United States that should be voting in this election. And at the last minute, um, the governor's office sent out this memo to election officials with a list of people that hadn't yet paid their court debts that they wanted them to be scrubbed from the voter logs, to be to be removed and and made Ill, ineligible to vote. Just like, come on, guys, we just went through this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, subverting the will of the people, of course, mm-hmm. and also making sure that the election is as unfair as possible. Yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing with Republicans. You know, they never thought, hey, people really don't like voting for us. Maybe we should make better policies. Instead, it's, hey, people really don't like voting for us. Let's make sure less people vote. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and this is like, and the law preventing um, felons from voting if they have court debts is, is a recent one that he, like, that he signed and is, is now trying to push through. So it's just, it's, it's a total asshat move. Like the people of, of Florida have spoken. They want felons to be able to vote. And now he's just trying to sow confusion in an already confusing and challenging year. Um, it's just not cool. Yeah. So a hearty congratulations to Ron DeSantis for being our Asshat of, of the, the Week. week. So for our last segment this evening, we wanted to talk um, about a topic that's, you know, f- uh, front and center, top of mind these days regarding the election. And that is the concept of something called the red mirage. So, Nathan, why don't you walk us through exactly what that is? Yeah. So the red mirage is this theory that a lot of political scientists have developed, basically that on election day, when the numbers are coming in, at first, it's going to look like Donald Trump won in a landslide, like mm-hmm. that he won overwhelmingly. And then, later, 
it's going to the map is gradually going to become bluer and bluer and that's because later they're going to be counting the mail-in ballots mm -hmm. and the basis of this is the fact that biden voters tend to be more likely to vote by mail than trump voters mm -hmm. now here and the evidence here's the evidence for that so there was a uh, npr pbs poll that came out pretty recently that showed that uh only 25% of Democrats are planning on voting in person on Election Day versus 64% of Republicans. And 42% of Democrats plan on doing by mail absentee versus 19% of Republicans. And then, you know, there's another there's another chunk of Democrats, uh, about 31% that are planning on doing um early voting but at location so those actually do get counted before election day in in most states uh but in most states the mail-in ballots get counted last mm -hmm. so the concern with the red mirage is that we have a president who is already spending a lot of time sowing the seeds of discontent and also planting the seed that mail-in voting is somehow more fraudulent than in-person voting. Mm -hmm. So this kind of perfectly would verify his narrative if you already accept that premise. Yeah. And it could lead to a disastrous scenario that could tear the country apart, yeah. pretty much. So if it looks like Trump has won overwhelmingly on election day and then he declares victory so this is why in the first presidential debate chris wallace specifically asked like will you wait to declare victory until it has been independently verified it, this is the reason for that um if he just declares victory and then later mail-in ballots come and it shows that joe biden won there's a good possibility he's going to go to his supporters and say hey they stole it. Yeah. They counted mail-in ballots, and it showed that Biden won. I told you this would happen. Yeah. I told you that they would steal it from us. Yeah. You know, start a revolution. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Because let's, I mean, we shouldn't underestimate how much whiplash there might be from a perceived uh, Trump landslide um, on election night. So one, one model... Um, estimates that on election night if if only about if only 15% of of mail-in ballots are counted on election night um, which seems you know not out outside of the realm of possibility then they project that Trump could win the electoral college with uh, 408 electoral votes to Biden's 130 and then as the other 75% of mail-in ballots are counted um over like the next days or weeks, this might flip to a scenario where they model that Biden could could have a lead of 334 over Trump's 204, which means that, yeah, you could literally have this scenario where like Trump supporters are all of a sudden entrenched in the belief that he has won not only the election, but by a landslide with a mandate from the American people. And then all of a sudden it's stolen away at the last minute which is a, a horrible 
like scenario I'm sure for them to experience and, and honestly for us to describe, but the fact that Trump has been feeding into this and as we talked about last week, his narrative that he pushes can be really dangerous. When we talked about stochastic terrorism, um, the fact that, you know, if you're pushing people, if you're sowing the seeds of doubt in our electoral process, if you're talking about stealing an election via fraud, um, you know, the probability that you'll have one or small groups of people lash out in, in violence seems all but certain. And you know, different political analysts have described a few scenarios which they think will be particularly problematic, um, even if you knew all the votes on one night. So like scenarios like, you know, um, Biden winning the popular vote and uh, like Trump winning the Electoral College, like happened in 2016. Um, and the others involve like small margins and different and different mismatches of, of vote counting. But all of these become certain yeah. when you have like this possible whiplash effect of expectations from voters. Yeah. And it's scary. I mean, when yeah. people are talking, I've already seen some of my conservative friends like on social media talk about how they're, you know, they're going to start a civil war. Mm hmm. Uh, if if Trump loses and look, I don't know if they're all talk or if they're serious. It's kind of hard to tell during the Trump administration. Yeah. When you have literal white supremacists walking the streets shouting Jews will not replace us mm -hmm. like it is hard to predict what Trump supporters are going to do. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the things that I would like to say. First off. If you're listening, um, please be patient on election day. Yeah. Like, we might not know who the president, who the next president's going to be on election day, and that is okay. Yeah. It is more important that we, um, that we have correct results than speedy results. And, and I, I also want to, Take a quick second and talk to any Trump supporters that they might be listening. They might they might like to hate listen to us or or whatever. Or um, maybe they just love us. Or maybe they just love us. You know, maybe they're a family member that listens because they like the sound of my beautiful voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, if Donald, if all of the votes get counted, and Donald Trump wins the electoral college, he is the president. Yeah, and I will accept that result. All right. And, you know, all Democrats should accept that result as, as again, as long as he does not try to get a bunch of mail in ballots thrown out. We should accept that result because mm -hmm. that is democracy. All right. If he wins, he is the president. It, 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 and, and, and as long as he didn't get ballots thrown out, if he wins, he is the president. We should accept that if he doesn't win after they count all of the mail in votes. Please don't start a civil war. Yeah. I mean, please. Yeah. Please. The, the last four years have been bad enough. 2020 has been bad enough. Mm -hmm. Please don't start a civil war. Yeah. Like, I know you're going to be upset, but that is democracy. You know, Democrats had to accept the results of the 2000, 
2016 election, Mm -hmm. and we've had to live with those results for the last four years, you got to do that too. Yeah. Because America is a constitutional democracy. And the way our president is selected based on our current constitutional democracy is through an electoral college. And if Joe Biden wins that electoral college, he is the president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And no amount of claims that Democrats have tried to relitigate the 2016 election for, you know, however long, you know, which I've heard a lot like that. Oh, well, why should we accept the outcome of this 2020 election? Democrats never accepted the outcome of the 2016 election. Well, that's not true, first of all. That, you know, we certainly did, all Democrats accepted that he was duly elected president. No one was trying to throw him, like, throw out those votes or anything like that. The fact that he is a criminal and Democrats were trying to hold him accountable accountable for his corrupt and criminal actions is not trying to relitigate an election. That's trying to litigate an impeachment. Um, And two, it's— We also live in a republic. Yeah, exactly, exactly, where that's— Something Which, that, as Republicans, I thought you were into that. <laughs> it's a, just an accident of uh, wording. Um, uh, so, like, so no amount of like, it's also not about like psychologically accepting it. Like, sure, maybe you claim that the, the liberal snowflakes just never really got accepted that he really was the president. None of that matters. What matters is who ends up actually being president and a peaceful transition of power, even though Trump has refused to um, commit to this, refused to commit to conceding the election should he be defeated and to a peaceful transition of power. It is necessary. If we fail to accomplish that, um, we have failed the project of the United States of America. Also, I think it's important to note that the peaceful transfer of power is as much for the incoming president as it is for the outgoing president. Because when you're the outgoing president or the outgoing leader in a country where there is not a peaceful transition of power, (laughs) bad things happen to you. Yeah. Guess how you get outgoing. (laughs) Yeah. So it's beneficial in the United States that we have a peaceful transfer of power to the person who is the outgoing president. We're not like the countries that they do regime change through violent revolutions. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty much the whole point. Because that hurts the incoming leader and that hurts the outgoing leader. And more important, most importantly, it hurts all of the citizens of the nation. It hurts the integrity of our our country, our electoral processes, our government. it, It affects the legitimacy of our government to govern. It's it's absolutely critical that we have a peaceful transition of power, which makes what we're seeing really worrying. Um, I, so so I've been really skeptical recently. I've heard from a number of, of friends just in passing, like, you know, oh, like we should expect violence this, this election, or, oh, there's gonna be a civil war that's coming. And I was really skeptical of that. Um, until I started doing some reading and research. And at this point, like the DOJ and the FBI are both planning for the possibility of election-based violence, as well as, um, as well as local law enforcement. They're all planning 
for the potential for voter intimidation during and before the election, and then potential post-election night violence afterwards. Um, and, you know, one um, FBI memo specifically called out the potential threats of election-related violence. Um, and on top of that, like Nathan, like you were saying that you're not sure how much is just blowing smoke versus actual like backing up, you know, these claims with action. Well, if it helps, um, June hit a monthly record of firearm sales, according to FBI data, of 3.9 million firearms sold. Now, I'm not saying that like these people are definitely going to use these for political violence or anything like that. Um, we've had a particularly tumultuous uh, summer. Um, but the fact that another Department of Homeland Security report specifically called out the threat from lone wolves and small domestic extremist cells as being like a key threat to our nation in this year is worrying. Um, and on top of that, a poll just came out um, in, in September and October, which found that um, a third of Americans now consider violence justified to advance political goals, which is double the number that believed this in December 2019. So 44% of Republicans and 41% of Democrats said there would be at least a little justification for violence if the other party's nominee wins the election which is up from, uh, from June when only 35% of Republicans said that and 37% of Republicans said that. And, and the thing is, like, we know that these things kick off like powder kegs, right? All you need is a spark. You need a small, a small group to take violent action. And um, we're seeing that the share of Republicans um, that see a substantial justification for violence if their side loses jumped from 15% in June to 20% in September. Well, for Democrats, it's actually increased too, from 16% in June to 19% in December. So we're seeing heightened public condoning of violent response to an election. That's really terrifying. And, and I'm not going to call that a civil war, because to me, unless, unless somehow our military is divided between sides, like it's, it's you know, like an insurgency. Yeah. But the fact that like we have a legitimate fear of small domestic terrorist organizations um and a a public condoning of election and and political related violence I find to be a really terrifying trend and one that uh, makes me really worried for like mid November. Yeah. And look, to those 19% of Democrats, uh, I would say that, you know, Donald Trump wins if he wins fairly. You know, it, it's clear that there were no ballots thrown out or that he doesn't try to use the Supreme Court in order to basically just steal the election. You got to accept the results because that's democracy. And on that happy note, we're going to finish out our episode with highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, my highlight this week is that the appraisal for the house that I am working on uh, buying 
is finally being reviewed. Awesome. And we are hopefully going to be closing on it next week, but we will see. Um, so I'm hoping that my highlight next week is going to be us closing on it. <laughs> nice. But we'll see what happens. Mm. Uh, but I'm really excited to finally uh, get into my own apartment um, to get get started working on this and to hopefully uh, make a home out of it for myself and my wife. Man, dude, that is just so awesome. I'm so glad yeah. you, that uh, you guys are making progress on that. Um, and hopefully next so week. So what's your highlight? Yeah, hopefully next week that you will be a, a homeowner. <laughs> so what's so what's your highlight? Um, so for me, I, it's nothing nearly as, as significant as that. Um, I think I've been like biking much more this week, and the weather has just been perfect for it. And so it's been so nice to just get outside, listen to music, listen to a podcast, um, and bike around. I just got new tires and uh, tubes for my bike, and I'm I'm starting to plan some more enhancements. So I'm just like super excited for that. Oh, oh you listen to podcasts? You know, there's yeah. there's one in particular that I that I recommend. Oh, really? Um, Does it have a yeah. a broad a broad perspectrum of ideas? It does, in <laughs> fact. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 two idiots that uh, talk about politics. Mm. Is it is it neurologically diverse? Yes, it then is. Then I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm in. All right. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again 